Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. As someone who appreciates the value and impact of art in bringing about change, I am thrilled to bring to you Benjamin Von Wong's story. Benjamin's work lies at the intersection of fantasy and photography and combines everyday objects with shocking statistics. It has attracted the attention of corporations like Starbucks, Dell, and Nike, and has generated over 100 million views for causes like ocean plastics, electronic waste, and fashion pollution. He is also the host of the Impact Everywhere podcast, where he talks to change makers about their theory and strategy for change. In today's conversation, I talked to Benjamin about how, as an artist, he goes about collaborating to develop concepts and bringing them to life. I love his philosophy of communicating pervasive environmental problems in the most literal way possible. And his images create a sense of intrigue that pulls you in and attracts you with the installation through the photos or videos, which then brings the problem right before our eyes. And it doesn't feel like such an abstract concept anymore. It's really amazing the labor, the time and detail and thought that goes into his installations. It may be helpful to watch this episode on our YouTube channel because we discuss some of his really cool projects and share images as references. You should also go to his website and check it out. I will include all of this in the show notes. All right. I hope you enjoy this episode. If you have any reactions or feedback, any thoughts you want to share with me, please feel free to DM me on Instagram. Or you can also email me. I'll provide all of this information in the show notes. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Benjamin, for joining us on the Breaking Green Ceilings. I'm really excited to have yet another amazing guest to talk about how they're perceiving and changing the world in their own way. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. I always get intimidated when I see like the blue tick sign right next to the Instagram <laughs> person's name or whatever. I'm like they'll never respond, but I'll just try. And I was really surprised that you did. So thank you <laughs> for being so accessible. No, yeah. I mean, I love helping and I love sharing. And I think that's what we're all here in this world to do is to share and spread knowledge, love, joy, whatever, whenever we can. So. Yeah, yeah. I wish more folks would be like you, but it's also understandable. People are very busy. So what I wanted to talk to you about is your expertise as a photographer. Over the past three years, you've collaborated with other creators to build these amazing installations that raise awareness on various social and environmental issues. But for the purpose of this podcast, we'll focus on your work on ocean plastics. But you've also done projects on the evils of doing laundry, fast fashion, and electronic waste. And I highly recommend that the listeners and viewers of this podcast go to Benjamin's website. We'll provide the link in the show notes. So we'll get started here with our first question, which is what role has nature played in your life? Yeah, wait, before I answer that, I need to address the evils of doing laundry because... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I just thought I would have a nice ring to it. <laughs> yeah, because I'm not saying that it's bad to do laundry and that one True. should never wash their clothing. I was simply raising awareness for the fact that 
a lot of the clothing that we wear is made of polyester, nylon, spandex, which are all plastics, right? Like yeah. when you put these in a laundry machine and they're being tossed around with the detergent, what ends up happening is lots of pieces of microfibers end up breaking off. So much so that 92% of the tap water in the United States contains traces of microfibers. So it's something that we should be aware about. Like all these yoga pants made out of recycled plastics is a cool thing, but it's not actually solving the problem. It's merely delaying the issue or redirecting it in a different way. So the image for those listening is a monster crawling out of washing machine made out of clothing. The message isn't that doing your laundry <laughs> is a terrible thing. It's more like when you buy clothes, you should be aware. And so there are a lot of solutions that are available. There are the really like lo-fi solutions like the Guppy Friend, which is basically a fiber bag that you can put your clothing inside of and it'll capture all the fibers. There are some more expensive solutions coming out like Planet Care right now, which is a filter for your laundry machine that go capture microfibers. It's an end-to-end user solution, which is a subscription-based model, which is kind of interesting and so on and so forth. So there are people working to address the problems. And the, maybe the simplest thing you can do is to not wash your clothing in small loads. So you want to have a bigger load of laundry each time and you want to leave the temperature on the lower setting, which produces less microfiber. So that's something you can do like immediately without buying anything. So anyways, just wanted to clarify that piece of the puzzle before. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for schooling me. I appreciate it. Here I was just, I totally underrepresented and over-exaggerated the issue. (laughs) No, no, it was funny. So, Which is the opposite of what I'm trying to do in the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it was But thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So back to your question, your actual question, which was, what role has nature played (laughs) in my life? So I think I have an interesting backstory compared to most environmentalists is that I actually never grew up really caring much about the environment. I'm not one of those people who gets recharged by going on a hike. If anything, I'm very much a homebody. I like being on the computer. I like fast internet. I'm like a very, very, very much a city kid. And even today as an environmentalist, like I don't make a lot of time to go out in nature. And so nature in my life is less about... I am deeply in love with nature and I feel like we all need to protect it because I don't know, we need to be good stewards. Like it's simply that like we live on a planet that supports all forms of life. And if we want to continue existing in this beautiful world that we have created for ourselves, we need to also give back to the ecosystem in a way that is sustainable. So it's as if we're burning down the house that we like to live in. And so even if it's a part of the house that I'm not visiting very often or don't think about, I know that like the air that I breathe relies on it, that the weather and the stability of like the other people that live in the same house all require it to exist. And so I come at it from a direction that's a little bit less of the quote unquote traditional tree hugger perspective. And so the work that I create sort of reflects that, which is how can I talk to other like 15 to 21-year-old teenagers who just like video games and fantasy? And how can I show them that saving the environment? It can be a cool thing. Yeah, thanks for that. And thank you for confessing that you don't necessarily go out into or go hiking. I think some environmentalists will be like, oh my gosh, that's not acceptable. But (laughs) It's because I'm lazy. (laughs) (laughs) I just think everyone has a different way of connecting with nature, but also connecting to the issue of environmental sustainability and that we shouldn't be judgmental just as long as we're all trying to do our own part in it is what really matters. So you mentioned that 
environmental sustainability wasn't really something that you thought about growing up. So that kind of reflected in your career choice in a way-ish, where you decided to be a hard rock mining engineer. But it was soon after you graduated that you realized that it didn't have meaning for you. And so you wanted to do something that made an impact and you chose photography as your medium. So how do you go about building your brand as a photographer who amplifies positive impact? And what does positive impact look like to you? Yeah, so it took me a little while actually to figure out the whole positive impact part of it. And I've had many phases in my career. So as you properly surmised, um, my early days of... I wasn't really thinking about what I wanted to do with for the rest of my life. So much so that I went into a career path that I actually didn't want to do, but I hadn't thought about it that far. Literally, when I went to the open house for university, I was like, well, I'm good at math. I'm good at physics. I guess I'm going to be an engineer. So I went to the engineering department and I talked to a bunch of people. And then the folks at the mining booth, which I had never heard of before, were like, hey, you get paid more. You get to travel. They're really small classes. We have work terms. I was like, ooh, that sounds like a great opportunity. I'm just going to go there. And so it was like terrible because by the time, like even before I graduated, I was like, wait a minute, I got tricked. Like, yes, I get to travel, but I'm always going to be in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do. We're working these like mines and it's like, what, like, what am I doing? Like, this is terrible. But I didn't have a plan B. Kind of, I don't know, for me, it was like, well, when you're in elementary school, you go to secondary school, secondary school, you go to university. Like, it was just like, you just follow the path. <laughs> and then once I was exactly. like, wait, the path is over. Where do I go? So I wish I had put a little bit more thought into what kind of life did I want to lead? What kind of experiences did I want to have? What kind of people would I want to hang out with? Like, And it's less about the career, but more like what kind of skills would I want to acquire in order to have the kind of lifestyle that I wish I could have. And so the reason I explain that is because photography was the first time that it sort of allowed me to do that. When I started photography, it was while I was working in a mine in Winnemucca, Nevada, a girl broke up with me and I was like, oh, I better find something to do. Otherwise, I'm going to go crazy. Like, what do I do? Oh, the stars are pretty. I'm just going to buy a camera and take pictures of the stars. And so me discovering photography wasn't a targeted decision. It was just something I kind of stumbled upon. But what was interesting about it and the reason why it stuck is because photography gave me a tool. It was a tool where I could bring it to a party and suddenly I had something to do. It was a reason to talk to people and work with them. It was an opportunity to go backstage in a way that I couldn't do before. And finally, when I decided to quit my day job, it was a way that I could travel for free, right? I could go somewhere, I could teach a workshop, I could meet people, I could collaborate with them, I could sleep on their sofas now because now we were friends and then I could just go to the next place. And so it was almost this like key to the world for me. And I learned fairly early on that as you were embarking on this journey, if you're able to provide value to people along the way, then people would be really interested in helping you get to wherever you wanted to get to. And I think that sort of idea, so you described like, oh, your question was like, what does positive impact look? And I think positive impact is very broad, right? So in my earlier days, I wanted to prove that it was possible to pursue your passion. Like where you graduated didn't determine what kind of life you needed to have and that there was the opportunity to switch that. And then along the way, I wanted people to like dream even bigger. And I wanted them to believe that like anything is possible, right? So a lot of my work is very fantastical, very surreal. It was about defying expectations, but also showing that you didn't need a lot of money to do it. You just needed to be able to put in the hard work to dream big, to find collaborators, right? So a lot of my stuff in the beginning was very aspirational. And I think it was only after I 
had successfully found a certain level of stability where I was just like, oh, okay, I can actually like survive as an artist. I can make a living. I have a little bit of recognition. It feels like I could make a living out of this. And I was like, okay, well then what's next? What's next? Like, where do we go from here? And then it was only then that I started thinking about like impact in the greater sense of it. Like, okay, besides inspiring people, besides like showing people pretty things and explain to them how it's done, could the work itself serve a greater purpose? Could I use my art to change the world like very, very specifically in a broader sense? And so it took a long time to like work to that level. And even today, I'm still sort of questioning, well, where does it go? Because artists often fall into the category of raising awareness for X or Y. But awareness isn't change. Awareness is the first step to change, but awareness isn't change. And I'm interested in closing the gap between awareness and transformation. And I'd love to like design my art in a way to like close that gap even further. So I don't know if I kind of answered your question. It was like sort of a long-winded way of answering it. But that's sort of how I've been thinking about impact and how I've arrived at it. And I think it's a journey. Like I definitely haven't figured out the formula to have a positive impact on the world and everyone should do what I do. And I don't think I'll ever get there. But that's how I kind of stumbled across impact in my life. No, you definitely did answer the question and more, actually. So that was like the best breakup story ever. (laughs) (laughs) How breakups move you into a greater level of awareness or exploration, self-exploration, which is great. And then also how you define impact it kind of like hits the nail on the head is like impact looks different for each and every person based on their own purpose on this earth. So I really like how you define kind of like the evolution of what impact has looked like for you as a creator, as an artist in this space. But then also mentioning that it's about kind of like in the beginning, it sounded to me, at least you were talking about how it was about creating kind of like awareness of you as an artist, but also awareness around an issue. And over time that has evolved into like awareness is an action. So now you're trying to like find how to bridge that gap or rather close that gap. Yeah, definitely a bunch of different phases. So yeah, you got that right. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) So in our conversation today, we're focusing more on ocean plastics, like I mentioned, or just plastic pollution. So you said that plastic pollution is a boring topic. So how do you go about making it interesting? And another thing that kind of caught me when I was watching a number of your videos about how you've been creating your installations and projects is that for you, there's an element or you're looking to create an element of extravagance, unique and different. Like how do all of those three come into making plastic pollution interesting? Yeah, for sure. I mean, plastic pollution is just an example of something that one would assume is like boring, but so many causes, whether it's climate change or maybe like, I don't know, deforestation, or you can take it basically any issue and it would be kind of boring after you've heard it many, many times. And so I think in a grander scale, sort of the role of art and storytelling is to take issues that you've heard too much and recontextualize them in a way that make them fresh and new and interesting and exciting. Now, I create work that is defined by who I am as a human being and the style that I have, which is I combine this like extravagant fantasy world with a sense of scale. I do things really big so that they're 
unforgettable. And I try to make them as symbolic as possible, right? So I personally is, but this is not the formula. This is my formula as a person who likes to do big, crazy things. It doesn't mean that you need to do like big, crazy things in order to make them effective. You can look at a a piece by Banksy, which is really just a small graffiti, but it's very clever. It's very thought-provoking. And so I think each person has to find their own unique voice. The question is, how do you make sure that you are helping others talk about an issue in a way that makes them sound cool and feel good about themselves, right? Because ultimately, like for someone to share something, what's going on in their mind is like, how is this in line with the kind of person I want to project into the world to be, right? If I share this piece of content, what will my following think of me? Will they think that I am closer to the ideal version of myself or farther away from the ideal version of myself? And so when I create work, it's almost trying to appeal to that. It's saying like, hey, look at this really cool way to talk about a problem. Have you ever seen a mermaid on 10,000 plastic bottles? And this is a guy who did it with a bunch of volunteers. Like, you should support this guy. Like, this is like an underdog person fighting for the right cause, right? So it's hitting these things. And so people will tend to share that. I think companies might tend to share it if they're in line from a mission perspective. Governments may be less because that's not quite the right demographic. So you can't really hit everyone. But I think that if you understand why people share things, then you can try to create content that they will be interested in sharing, all the while kind of combining and making sure that your style is imbued in it. So that's something I didn't think about is making it shareable because at the end of the day, you want to bring about behavior change, of course. And so one of the best ways to do that is having that information. It's kind of like you're packaging a message for them, essentially. Exactly. Yeah, people don't have time to like, interpret what you have to say. So you want to make it as easy for people to talk about something that they care about already yeah. so that they can convert their friends, right? The most effective people, like you as a human being, have the greatest influence over your close friends and family. Mm -hmm. So if you care about something tangentially and I can get you to share it, then the chance that you sharing this thing is going to influence your close friends and family is greater. And so I think from a theory of change perspective, it makes a lot of sense to try to empower those who already are your allies in some way, shape or form, right? right? Finding a way to talk about something that's cool. Like if you're an environmental activist and you've already shared the video with the turtle up its nose, and then you keep sharing like another negative thing, like a trash wash up in Bali, and then you share another negative thing that's going on in the government because of some policy, like the banning of the ban of plastic bags, and you keep sharing these things, well, then ultimately, like people are just gonna be like, oh, I don't want to go see that person's profile anymore because they're always talking about negative things. It's not really good. So how do you rebalance that? How do you give people the opportunity to talk about things in a positive way? What are some inspiring stories? How can you give people the tools to speak about what is in their minds that can make them gain social status within their friend group? And so I try to be the person that can at least create that kind of content once in a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're so right. I think even for me as the environmentalist in my family and probably I think the only environmentalist in my family, it gets really tiresome for me to just be. And I think sometimes I'm overburdening as well by presenting some of this negative information to my family members. So you're right. How can I present this information in a way that it not only looks beautiful, but it's also like, it's not as like depressing, <laughs> you know, but it still raises awareness on the issue. So 
how do you instill a message of action in the beauty of your work? Yeah, I think the work itself doesn't necessarily inspire action. It's the surrounding story. So a lot of people look at my work and they're like, oh, Ben's a photographer. And it's true. I am a photographer. But then with the photograph is a video. And with the video is a blog post and with the blog post. So it's almost like I see my photography as the top of a sales funnel. I'm trying to funnel people into this world because they're looking at this thing and they're like, wait, what am I looking at? Is it real? Is it fake? How is it done? And then, then you have a chance to like strike a conversation up with people because they're curious. And when people are curious, then they're open to being told something that they didn't necessarily know. And so what I try to do, and I'm not always successful at this, but what I try to do is I try to think of, well, if someone's stumbling across this work for the first time, well, what would I like to invite them to do? Now, I think with the plastics problem specifically, it gets kind of tiring because you've probably already signed a petition before and guess what? Nothing changed. Okay. And then you're probably already not buying plastic bottles anymore. You got like a little tumbler and maybe you switched away from takeout. And so it's like, but like, that's not solving. It doesn't feel like you're really solving the issue, right? Like when you go to a supermarket and you want to avoid plastic, like good luck avoiding plastic, unless you really are invested in taking the time to completely avoid everything. And it's like, it's almost impossible to avoid buying things with plastic these days. So like even the zero waste movement is disproportionately white, female, middle to upper class, and no kids. Because they're the ones that have the time and the privilege of avoiding plastic. So it's not really a general accessible solution. And this is where I've kind of become a little bit frustrated in my own work is that there are a lot more people raising awareness for problems and a lot fewer people raising awareness for solutions. Because if you raise awareness for problems and you don't give people an outlet on what to do, well, what you end up doing is you also raise... So not only are you raising awareness for the problem, you're raising frustration for people. And when people get frustrated, then they give up, right? If there's no way to put that energy. And so these days, I try really hard to think about what kind of solutions can be paired with it. But it's not easy because a lot of solutions right now are not scalable. They're not global. But this is where I think there are some opportunities that are really exciting. One opportunity in particular that I'm kind of excited about these days is that there is a push with the World Wildlife Fund, with WWF, Ellen MacArthur Foundation, and a couple others are pushing to create a global treaty for plastics. So think Paris Climate Accord for plastics. And that's something that's like really necessary because you need the people who are producing plastic, like raw feed, to coordinate with the brands, to coordinate with the consumers, to coordinate with the governments, to coordinate with the municipalities, to coordinate with the waste recycling, to coordinate with the informal waste economy, like all these different parts of the equation need to work together so that everyone can be like, all right, this is what we're going to do together. Because guess what? Plastic in the ocean actually legitimately benefits nobody. Like there's not a single person, government or otherwise that benefits from the oceans dying. (laughs) And so we are united in that way to work together to solve the problem. And so if we can start pushing towards global accords as opposed to local accords, I think that would be kind of a first step in the right direction. But anyways, market forces are changing. There are different policies that are slowly being enacted. Entities like the European Union are sort of leading on the single-use plastic bans. But many would argue, especially like the green pieces or the break free from plastic movements, like they would argue that all these changes that we're currently putting into place right now are not enough, right? It's too little, too late. We need to do more. We need to do faster. And so how do we accelerate that? We'll have to see. Yeah, good Lord. I was just... 
as you were talking, I was thinking about how a lot of our solutions are just focused on the individual's behavior and that can get really tiresome. And so my next question was going to be like, how can we use like your talent to activate governments? And you were just talking about the plastic treaty ban. And I think that's a really good example of making like macro level change and kind of using people like you to help us in moving these massive institutions into actions or into action rather. And policy, I think, is one of the most effective ways to really mandate any kind of change. But yeah, I think that's something that I just really appreciated as you were describing to you what does your kind of like understanding of action as it applies to your work. Yeah. Like change happens from like bottom up and top down, right? Like it's not that one is more important than the other. As consumer pressure starts to mount, that's when we start seeing policy changes. That's where we start seeing marketing campaigns that shift. I mean, companies like SodaStream have adopted, which is kind of ironic because their product is still made of plastic, but it uses less plastic. So a company like SodaStream will be like, oh, buy a SodaStream so that you stop harming the environment with plastics is like, there are companies now that are starting to push against the plastic thing because consumers are demanding it, right? So that's one direction. And that direction is really important. And you see students in schools, at least in more liberal states in Europe, where they all bring their mugs with them. And then on their mugs, they have stickers. And depending on like, if you have a hydro flask or a camelback, like it kind of gives you a different social status, which is like all really interesting stuff. So like this kind of bottom-up pressure is happening. And you'll see a lot of kids that are the ones educating their parents that they need to recycle. And so that pressure is happening, right? Yeah. On the lowest rungs. And then on the upper rungs, then you have all these activist groups that are really pushing. And the cool thing about art is that art can be used in either settings, right? So I can speak on a panel or I can speak at a conference. I can speak and give a presentation or someone else who is in the policy world can take my art and use it to create conversations with different people. And so the art can be used at the highest levels because we're all human. And at the end of the day, we change when we feel like we need to change. Like there's a really important element of feeling and art can help people feel, right? So that's happening at the top level, but it also happens at the bottom level. And so I think like art has this weird power of floating between all the different worlds. It like transcends language. And when I put a mermaid on 10,000 plastic bottles, which is the average number of plastic bottles a single American will use over the course of their lifetime, that image doesn't require any words. So it's just as effective in Africa as it is in China. And there's something really, really cool about that, right? So the hardest part is maybe that I don't know as an individual, like I can't tell you what impact this work has had, right? All I can tell you is the number of views or maybe the places it's been published, but it's really hard to track impact. And that's something that I think is kind of sad sometimes. But anyways, that's a whole nother topic. It really is a whole other topic is measuring your impact. But what you were saying is that really struck me is that how art transcends languages. And I think it also can transcend cultures. So like when you're talking about how someone from an African culture may view the mermaids hate plastic work that you had and somebody in China, they may have the same reaction, but they come from completely different cultures, right? Which I think is, I don't know, that I just had like an aha moment from what you said. <laughs> I was like, of course it does. But there's also the, the emotions element of it that I wanted to talk to you about. And it's what kind of art invokes emotions. And so in your work, 
of course, it invokes some sort of emotions, but I wanted to use some examples of your work of art and kind of just discuss it with you (laughs) briefly. (laughs) We won't go in like a deep conversation, which I'd love to, but obviously we don't have time. So what I wanted to do is share my screen and just so that viewers can have an idea of what we're talking about when we're referencing a particular piece of art. Sure. I don't know if it offends you when I say piece of art. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) Okay. My first question on this. So it looks like there's a free diver, but they're diving in like a sea of plastic cups, Mm -hmm. basically. And this was from your Plasticophobia installation. And was that just in Singapore? Yes, this was in Singapore. Okay. So just a little bit of background here. This is a plastic cave created from 18,000 cups with the help of 30 volunteers and in two days. And this was in Singapore. So like what emotions were you trying to invoke in this particular piece? Yeah. So this is an art installation that collected 18,000 plastic cups in a day and a half. And so that's, I think, an interesting statistic because we don't think about how much we consume as a people, as a society in a single day. And so part of the conversation starter is because this is done in Singapore, which is a place that is largely considered to be an environmental leader in the space. Yet Singapore doesn't really recycle. I think they recycle less than 5% of their plastic. Most of their plastics are actually incinerated or tossed into landfill. The original idea with this concept as we were thinking about it, and I was talking with the fellow artists on this project, which is Joshua Go, in order to build this is we, we thought we wanted to build like a cave that sort of felt like plasticophobic, right? Like, what does it feel like when these walls are kind of crushing into you? But as we were building it, we started to realize that, you know what, actually, this looks more mystical and cosmic than anything else. <laughs> and so what initially started off as this like close, tight cave ended up feeling more like a constellation of plastics. And so for me, this underwater shot almost brings to life the statistic, which is that there are more pieces of microplastic floating around in the ocean than there are stars in the Milky Way which is wild, right? And so how do you convey that? I don't know. I just thought it would be really interesting to have this guy look like he was swimming. And, and this is actually just a photo that's inverted. So it's just an upside down photo to, to kind of make people feel like he's swimming. And that's it. But with this art installation, it was a slight deviation from what I normally did in the sense that the goal was to create a space that anyone could photograph, take photos inside of. It wasn't just my photos, but the photos that anybody else who wanted to raise awareness for the issue could go in, put a model there and take a photo. So it was like a persistent gallery that was there for six weeks, which was really, really cool. Yeah, this was how I actually got to know about your work. Yeah. Through uh, Singapore Social, shout out to that show on Netflix. It's so So random how I stumbled upon that show as well. One of the personalities in that show was a volunteer, I believe, in this particular installation. So anyways, this podcast is not about that show. <laughs> but I was watching the video of how y'all put together this installation. And at one point you mentioned that you were concerned that it looked too beautiful. Why were you concerned about that? Yeah, well, that's exactly what I just explained to you. So basically, the original idea was to make it like a cave that was tight and plasticophobic, but at the end of the day, it looked more beautiful. And I was like, ah, it didn't create the emotion that I originally set out in my mind, but that doesn't mean it's bad. And so I think with art, when you create it, 
there's always the idea of what you think things are going to be. And then there's the reality of what happens when you actually do it. Yeah. And so somewhere in the middle of that is actually what the creative process is. It's bringing an idea from something that doesn't exist all the way into reality. And along the way, some things change. Sometimes they change for the better. Sometimes they change for the worse. I think one thing that I've learned is like, ultimately, at the end of the day, after you've built something, you get to tell the story of why everything existed. And so nobody knows the process and what the original intention was. So you can always work backwards after you've created the thing to figure out, well, how do I readapt this message so that it resonates with people? And sometimes it resonates really strongly and other times it doesn't. And that's kind of the nature of it. It's more important, I think, to try and play and experiment and learn and grow than it is to just sit around and do nothing. Yeah, you mentioned something interesting in terms of like the intention of the process, but the outcome was different. And for me, in my mind, I just assumed that the outcome was what was desired, which is completely just unrealistic in many situations. But there's also this, I thought going back to when you said that you were concerned about it looking beautiful, is that it would take away from the message that you were trying to pass on to those who are experiencing the installation that like plastic is ugly, it's gross, it's bad for the environment. Was I misunderstanding that comment? No, no, not really. Definitely, yeah. Okay. No, no, I think that's right. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's a fine balance of, but at the same time, how do you get somebody's attention if, because beautiful things tend to get people's attention. Yeah, exactly. When you look at the work that I create, it sort of strikes that balance between beauty and sadness. I think it's something that I consistently try to do. In this particular case, I was hoping to make it a little bit less pretty and more, I don't know, more disturbing. Like I want it to be almost like disturbing because this idea of the cups in my mind, when I was imagining this, I was like, oh, these cups are like tentacles, like a lot of like eyeballs kind of staring at you. And it looked like it was sort of discombobulated or felt like that was what the feeling would be. But in reality, it just ended up looking a lot more pretty. So I was like, okay. Well, you mentioned you had like a confessional booth where people would say what they would change in their behavior or whatever. That was what the show wanted to do. That had nothing to do with my art installation. That was what the show wanted to do. And I don't know if they did it because I didn't watch the show. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, they did it. Did it work? Yeah. Some people were confessed that they felt really gross that they don't use reusable cups and from now on that they would bring their own coffee cups to the cafe or whatever. And cool. some people were like, I'm going to be more cognizant about how much plastic I use. Some people were also mentioning that they're guilty of not remembering to carry their cloth grocery bag to the grocery store. So, I mean, small little things, but you know, it's something like you said. <laughs> The other piece that I was curious to talk to you about was the straw piece. I'm going to like mispronounce it, strawpocalypse. Mm-hmm. And I like that your work is like often accompanied with these shocking statistics. So with this installation, you had 168,000 straws and it took about two weeks of work to clean, organize and prepare all the straws. And the image here is, you've titled it The Parting of the Plastic Sea, to create the sense of a parting of the sea to reveal the plastics hiding within. What's the statistic that came with this installation? Yeah, the statistic was just our own statistic. Wait, actually, did I have a straw statistic? I feel like you... I don't actually remember. 
I don't think I did. There were maybe like a couple of statistics along how like the average straw is used for 10 minutes and then it just stays yeah. in nature forever or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But really the goal of the art installation was just to show how small little actions add up, right? Like so we think mm-hmm. of a straw as something inconsequential and tiny. But really when you see the accumulation of small decisions coming together of how each individual action can really contribute to a problematic whole, I think that was really what we were going after here. I mean, ultimately, it wasn't so much about the straw, right? The straw isn't the problem. It's the individual decisions or it's the perception that we as individual beings believe that I'm just one person. It doesn't matter what I do. And so the hope here was really to show how these small decisions do make a difference. My goal also is hopefully to make companies feel like they're more accountable at the same time. Small decisions make a big impact. I don't remember the exact statistics, but like there is a huge reduction on how many straws are used if you give someone a straw with their drink or you leave the straws somewhere else and people have to take it themselves, right? Like tiny little behavioral decisions, the tiny, tiny design decisions make a big difference. So obviously the goal is to reach a point where you have no straws, but if everyone can sort of start thinking about what they can do, then that's sort of what we need to focus on. And I know there are many issues in the world. Straws may not be the biggest one, but the lesson can be extrapolated into any field. Yeah. I think for me, the whole straws issue appalls many people, especially after the image of the straw and the turtle's nose. And I think it helps amplify that message of how something so small can be so destructive to natural habitats. Last question on this. It's really, again, very beautiful. (laughs) And it's quite a production. How did you come up with the idea of parting of the sea? Yeah, so when I create work, I try to have as many visual metaphors as possible because I think it creates a sense of familiarity with people, like the cave image from earlier. It almost feels like an underwater cave surrounded by reefs in some way, shape, or form. Over here with the ocean, kind of the parting of the plastic sea is obviously a religious metaphor. Like we all know Moses parted the sea, regardless of which culture you're from. You've probably heard that story before. And so it's like, how can you create moments of familiarity? If we know that by 2050, there may be more plastics than fish in the sea, or we were crossing and this mythical moments in time were to happen in 100 years, what would we see once we parted the sea? Would we see like pristine floors? No, we'd probably see like trash all over the place because that's how we are treating the environment. And so it was that metaphor of just trying to create a conversation that I try to think about. And so ideas don't just come out of the blue. I mean, there is an iteration of ideas where you come up with an idea that you think is going to work and then you keep breaking the idea down and improving it and improving it and improving it. And then eventually you run out of time and (laughs) and then you have what you have. So in this case, I think one of my original ideas was to create like a vortex, the same way you might see like a, a toilet when you flush a toilet, it just getting all these straws getting sucked down into this thing that I think that was one of the original ideas. But as I was like trying to conceptualize what it would look like if you built it, that vortex, when you looked at it from the side, would look really ugly, right? It would only look good from one angle. And so that was one of the earlier ideas. And so I think maybe artists are a little bit guilty of this, right? Like we were saying a little bit earlier, nobody knows what the actual journey is. So when you create an art piece and then you write the little like description of how you came to this, artists are always going to say how they were inspired by X thing. And it's this like beautiful little tiny story. But I think that's just a story. I don't think that's actually how creativity works. Yeah, yeah. And I realized that from talking to you, I guess like my experience is I don't get to see as much of behind the scenes of how 
these pieces are created. And that's what I really appreciate about the videos that you have on your website and on Facebook. It just like gives it so much more meaning and appreciation for all the thought and labor that goes into creating these pieces. So I really appreciated that. I have two more pieces to share, but not like don't want to go in depth again. But this is the mermaid piece that we've been referring to a couple of times in the discussion here. It's really very beautiful. (laughs) And it's amazing how you just found all those. Well, I think you mentioned a company donated, not donated, but... They lent it to me. Yeah. And I gave them back after. Yeah. And I really liked this piece as well. And again, like the statistic that comes with it is that every 60 seconds, the equivalent of a truckload of plastic enters the ocean. And so you quite literally dumped truckloads of plastic into the ocean. But of course, you, you picked it up. You didn't let it linger around. All that trash is tied together. So we actually yeah. spent days tying this thing together. And it was still so hard to keep track of all of it. So yeah, it's an interesting one. <laughs> yeah, I just have such a great appreciation for your work and how you just coordinate all of that stuff. So I'm going to stop sharing here. <laughs> so one of the questions that I did have is, how do you go about figuring out who to collaborate with? Well, to be honest, I'm kind of happy to collaborate with anyone as mm-hmm. long as there's something to collaborate on. Right? So like many times there are organizations that come up and go like, oh, what could we do together? And it's like, well, that's not a really good place to start because now I have to do all sorts of thinking. I have to pour a lot. Like, And that's what I have is like, my time, my energy, my creativity into like starting from a blank canvas. And a blank canvas is a really hard place to start. It's a far more interesting place to start is when somebody says, hey, I have this, this piece of a puzzle. Is this a piece of the puzzle that's helpful to you? And that piece of the puzzle can be money. It can be resources. It can be talent. It can be an organization. It can be people. But the people need to come with like a puzzle piece that you can integrate into what you're looking for. And along the way, I think they also need to have like a very clear goal. So saying, hey, and this is the conversation that I'm personally just tired of is like, hey, I want to raise awareness. The thing is like, I've raised awareness for causes for a long time now. And so I can say, oh, I've generated 100 million views for X or Y or Z. And I know personally that awareness isn't enough. And so for me, awareness isn't exciting. I'm interested in the transformation piece of the puzzle, especially when you're tackling an issue like plastic pollution, which is there's no need for more awareness, right? Not really. I mean, there is a lot of awareness already, but what we need are more solutions. <laughs> and so I think awareness has a role to play and then it needs to lead eventually to action. And then this is just me personally, where I am in my journey. I'm not saying like everyone has to be like me or anything like that. I'm not doing it better or worse than anyone else. It's just that for me and where I am at my journey, I'm really looking to connect with people who are in the solution space and trying to figure out how to tie those pieces together. And so... I guess in the work that I do, yes, there's the work that I create. That's one aspect of it. But then on the side, sometimes I do a bunch of consulting projects where people come up to me and they're just like, hey, we want to pick your brain for ideas and just see what comes out of it. And then that way, at least I can monetize my creativity and continue to make a living to do what I do. So there's, I think there are different like facets of yeah. that that are important to, to remember. So what you are saying is just a great segue into the next part of our conversation, which is your podcast titled Impact Everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's a continuation of the conversation around transforming from awareness to solution. So tell us a little bit about what the podcast Impact Everywhere is about. Yeah, so 
Impact Everywhere is sort of like, it was born out of the discovery that I really love learning and that a lot of my creative ideas are a byproduct of talking to people, right? I'm like an extrinsic creative. It's like, in order to be creative, you need to know what problem you're solving for. You need to understand what the world looks like. What are other people working on? And so I realized that I was having a lot of conversations, but I wasn't taking the time to record them. I'd meet people and then I'd forget. And, and it was just like, if I'm having all these interesting conversations with so many cool people, why not put it online so that anyone who's interested can discover more? And so the podcast talks to a huge variety of people trying to explore what is impact and how does it occur in different ways. And so from NASA scientists to someone who recently escaped modern day slavery to Oscar winning filmmakers to chefs who are helping feed the homeless, like just like so many different ways that people can make a difference. And I feel like we as individuals are often paralyzed by the fact that, well, I had this really normal life and I just went to school in this field and I studied this and now I've been working at a company, so I don't really know what I can do. And so the podcast hopefully explores how other people have found the opportunity to make a difference regardless of the field that they happen to be in. Now, of course, it's, it's hard because you're building a show, like from a marketing perspective, you're building a show around loosely woven topics. But I think that's kind of what the world needs. The world is so siloed in its thinking. So you'll have like a business podcast focused exclusively on business, or you have a sustainability podcast focused exclusively on sustainability. But I think there's so many lessons to be learned from outside of the field in which we are. And so I think it's really important to break out of those filter bubbles. And so the podcast that I do is a reflection of what I personally think could be interesting to other people not necessarily in a direct way. Sometimes it's very indirect. And at the very least, and maybe this is the most important part, right? Why do we do what we do? Is that I am enjoying the process of creating them. I am enjoying the process of learning and stumbling across other individuals that are doing it. And I've been super excited lately of the fact that Clubhouse has opened up to more of the world. Because I've been on Clubhouse since July of last year, but, but back then there was like almost no invitations that were going around. But now, there are like tens of millions of people on Clubhouse. It's a little bit more open. It's a little easier to get invitations. And so what that means is that I can do these interviews live on Clubhouse on Monday, Wednesdays, and Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern. And it's an opportunity for anyone to join the conversations. And I think there's something just really magical about that because now you're making audio social in a way that was never possible before. So that's the podcast and how it ties into Clubhouse and why I do it. Yeah, I checked out a few of the episodes and I really like the variety of stories and I guess solutions. And in particular, the one that I was drawn to was the founder of World Toilet. <laughs> World Toilet Organization. <laughs> yeah. And I liked that conversation because I'm into water and sanitation. And so for me, I really enjoy finding just simple solutions to these, I don't know, like huge problems that really are multifaceted in the sense that like having access to sanitation is one would think like a basic right, but millions of people don't have access to a toilet. And so it kind of also reminds me of, I think there was a documentary with Bill Gates like last year about how he was trying to find a simple solution to the toilet. And he gathered all these like scientists and toilet experts and whatnot. And 
yeah, at the end of it, they came up with a solution, but it wasn't a scalable solution and it wasn't a cheap solution. But it's at the same time, such a basic, I don't know how to describe it, like a basic issue or it shouldn't be this complicated, you know, for something that's like, that we need to function is just having a clean space for us to just do our bodily functions in a sense and not die as a result of it you know or in some cases women are assaulted or get raped so yeah that's why I appreciate the episode so how do you feel if at all is the podcast inspiring you or informing your next project if at all yeah I don't think it's that direct it's like when you learn something you read something new, it sort of like sits there and it marinates. And I think when I look at my journey and I see how certain projects have happened, they're always unexpected. They're like these unexpected seeds that have somehow sprouted for whatever reason. One of the things that I've started to do on my podcast is after every episode, so on Sundays, I launch a new episode. And then on Wednesday, I release a kind of a recap just my own reactions and my thoughts around what I thought was interesting about it and what I'm thinking about. Because I think in podcasts, like even this podcast, I'm doing most of the talking. So nobody gets a chance to hear how you're processing the responses. Like you get to say a couple sentences, but it's less your voice that's coming through. It's more the voice of your guest. And so specifically to answer that question that you just mentioned, I've started kind of recording these reflections. So an example of a conversation that I recently had was with game designer a game designer and a fiction researcher. And I found him online and was just like, what? Like, I don't understand. Like, I don't know anything about fiction. And I'm personally quite annoyed at how many people waste so many hours on video games and entertainment. I'm annoyed with myself when I waste time on video games. And I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if all those man hours were poured into doing something more practical, like saving the world? And so we had a conversation about it. And he was saying how like the fiction that we consume is actually a reflection of things that are missing in our everyday lives. And so what's interesting to ask yourself is like, what are you getting out of the entertainment that you consume? And to pay attention to it, to figure out what is required in order to like export those attributes into your own life, right? Like, and so, and I was like, oh, that's so true. Like, what are some lessons that I can extrapolate from that and integrate into my life? So in my case, I would watch like stupid action movies. That's how I tune off. I'll watch like a dumb action movie well, I don't know, with Jason Staten or whatever, going around just bashing people up and then... Or Nicolas the right? Cage. Like, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> like those movies. And it's just like, why am I watching this? Like, you know what's going to happen. It's the same storyline. It's always been repeated. It's just like a bunch of people beating each other up. And I'm like, oh, I think I know the reason why I watch movies like this is because it, life is simple. You have a good person that gets screwed over and then now he's going to fix it. And then the world is peaceful again, right? Like it's like a very linear, simple life. And I'm like, there's a lack of simplicity in my life. Like things aren't clear because I'm an artist and I'm doing work that isn't a career path. And I don't know when my next job is going to come. And there's a lot of like uncertainty. And I'm just like, oh, I think it's the certainty that I am looking for. And so it's like, well, how can I create frameworks around a more structured life that I can put inside of my own world, right? So I think they're just like lessons like that, that you can take from every conversation. And what it really requires is just being conscious of it. Right? Like if you have a conversation, like if we have a conversation right now and you hear something that you find interesting, but you don't take the time to sit on it and process it and synthesize it 
to integrate into your own life, then it's just going to fade away. It's sort of like when you go to a conference and you you leave and you feel super inspired. And then three days later, you're like, wait, what did I learn? I think that's what everyone does. And so the podcast for me is a container in which to be accountable to my own learning for me first and foremost, and then hopefully others can benefit from the same thing. Yeah, that's I really like that habit of doing a reflection piece. I definitely don't reflect as much as I would like to on the episodes because I think I've allowed myself to get stuck in this rut of like produce, 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 right? And I did that in the first season. I had like 40 episodes and every single week for nine months. And when I was reflecting on it last year, I was like, wow, I moved really fast. And I just wonder like how much of that knowledge and wisdom have I really held on to in a sense. And so with the second season, I'm just trying to be a little bit more intentional and give it a little bit more time to like process. And another way that I do process the information is like when we share it on social media, where we not only share like, for example, like snippets of the guests, but we also go beyond the topic where we're talking about. So for example, like here, we're talking about ocean plastics. So I'd go back to the conversations that I had with you, but also like build out an entire like post on what you shared, but also just like the statistics and give people a greater awareness of what the issue is. But like you, I'm stuck in this place where I'm trying to find a way to transfer over the awareness into some sort of action. So beyond the podcast, how can we create a community in a sense? But yeah, I totally relate to what you're talking about. And then as you were talking about the shows that you watch, I'm like, it makes sense. I watch rubbish shows, I tell you. Like Singapore Social? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my gosh. And right now I'm watching this Australian show. It's called The Single Wives. I mean, one thing is I do like reality shows because it gives me insight into human behavior. Yeah, well, <laughs> And that's culture. Good. But also because I think about a different type of world when I watch those rubbish shows because all day I am busy thinking about solutions to our environmental problems, which are really like saddening sometimes for me and frustrating and invoke really intense emotions that when I tune out, I I mean, like at the end of the day, I don't want to think about that stuff that is sometimes either bearing me down. So yeah, I think it's interesting. Yeah, see? So you would have appreciated the episode too. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go check it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's what's so fun about these conversations. And like, when do you, in normal life, when do you actually take the time to like research someone? Or sorry, you discover someone, you write an email on why you want to like connect with them. And then you research them in order to prepare for the interview. And then you have the interview where you get to ask more questions. And then you reflect upon the interview in order to create your show notes and your graphics and everything else. And then you can maybe port that knowledge into the thing. It's like, we never do that normally. And so the podcast is like an intrinsically, I think, like a really great way to learn about other people and to be present and to be active. Now, I don't know how much of this stuff actually like holds, but you're also creating a track record of all these conversations that you've had. So in the event that you're like, one day you feel stuck and... I don't know, you want to tackle an issue, you can always go back into your archives and figure it out. Like I've had many conversations with people where I'll just be like, oh, you know who you should talk to? There's this person that I had on my podcast and you just send them the link to this episode 
And you say like, would you like an introduction? Like look at the summary and see if that's a conversation that's helpful for you. So there's value in creating an archive of the people that you've met along the way and the conversations that you've had. And I think maybe that's why everybody has a podcast today is because the idea of creating an archive is really interesting, but it's a ton of work. So that's the part that no one tells you about. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Everyone's like, it's a low-hanging fruit, blah, blah, blah. No, it's it's not a low-hanging fruit. (laughs) (laughs) All you need is a mic and a computer. No, it's, yeah. Not if you want to do a good job. (laughs) Exactly. Not if you want to do a good job. But having a podcast is giving me an idea of like other ways that I can archive my experiences. Mm Mm-hmm. Whether it's just like recording conversations with family members on like a small recorder, but it's giving me more of a push to document my life experiences in a sense and others as well. But yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to add on like your podcast impact everywhere? No, not really. I mean, if you are looking to broaden your scope of how people are making a difference in the world in some way, shape and form, whether they're coming from an oil and gas background to an artist background to uh, an indigenous background and how they're using their voices for good. Search for Impact Everywhere. If you just want to be a part of these conversations uh, that are live, feel free to find me on Clubhouse, the Impact Everywhere Club or at Von Wong. And let's have a conversation. It's like totally open to that. Yeah. I'm definitely going to be joining your Clubhouse conversation. So look out for the troll. Quiet. Perfect. <laughs> so let's go into the lightning round then. A series of four questions. Answer the first thing that comes to your mind. The first question here is what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? I think I have phases. So whatever book I tend to read tends to be like something really amazing. So I read Give and Take by Adam Grant and I loved it because it told me how to be a better giver without sacrificing myself. And then I read Winners Take All by Anand Giridadas. And I was like, oh my gosh, the world is screwed up. Uh, this is terrible. And then completely like threatened my philosophy of how I was making money in the world. And then I would read a book like The Ideas Industry, how plutocrats, pessimists, and something else, well, and thought leaders, I think, are changing the world. And that completely transformed the way I see thought leaders versus intellectuals. And that was really interesting. And then I'll read a book like Tiny Habits by James Clear. And I'll be like, oh, I need to completely restructure the way I design my life. So I'm sort of like the last thing I heard or the last thing I read is the most interesting thing to me. Right now I'm reading a book by someone I met on Clubhouse. His name is Arjuna and he is a a coach and he wrote this book called Radical Brilliance. And he basically interviewed over 500 people to figure out how the happiest people live their lives. Like how did they arrive to that point? And it's all about like how to gain alignment in your life. And so currently reading that book. So I would say I'm usually where I am now is a function of what book I'm reading now. (laughs) I'm like a squirrel. (laughs) Yeah, I just get distracted all the time. You made a good point because there are many things that influence us in different phases of our life. So thanks for sharing that. I took some notes. (laughs) What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? The most recent new habit I have is just note-taking. I've used a program called Rome Research and it's just given me a, a way to drop all thoughts, conversations I prepare for my podcast in it. So it just creates like one single archive that is linked, like bi-directional linked to different concepts. I can't say I'm particularly disciplined at it, but I think that's the most recent habit that I've truly picked up and integrated that I use every single day. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm always looking for 
a way to have my notes accessible because right now I just use paper and pen. Yeah, that's hard to search. (laughs) It truly is. And then I'll use the notes feature on my Mac, but that's just for my grocery list. (laughs) Right. What's the best piece of advice you've received? So many. I mean, the best, I'll just say one. One, I think that made an impact in my earlier days of my creative career. A man called Chase Jarvis reviewed my portfolio like way back in like 2013 or something. And after looking at my work, he said, you need to figure out what the one thing you do better than anyone else in the world is, and then you'll never have to worry about getting paid. And I was just like, oh gosh, I have no idea what I'm best at doing over anyone else. Like, I'm not the best photographer. I don't really want to be the best photographer. Da, da, da. And I extrapolated the lesson to mean that you need to find out what makes you unique, like who you are and how you're going to infuse that in what you do. And if you stay true to that and you are aware of how that can serve the world, then can indeed find a place in this world, regardless of who you are and what you do. I think that's a piece of advice that has stayed true over the last decade, give or take, of my career. And one that I I try to use to cheer myself up if ever sometimes random pandemics happen and completely throw your plans up in the air. (laughs) I guess it's just good advice in general in life to keep you centered. So... Yeah, exactly. It's like, what makes you unique? And then this advice was recently echoed to me when I was talking to someone who is a podcast manager. And you know how hard it is to grow a podcast. And so this person was saying that ultimately, the reason why someone listens to a podcast is because of the personality of the host. And if your personality isn't shining through, then there's no reason why someone would follow the episode, regardless of how good your guests are, because then people are just going to cherry pick the guests that they want to listen to. They're not there for you. They're there for the guests. In which case, you're competing with every other podcast out there that has probably interviewed them once before. And so the importance of being heard and seen as uniquely you is the most valuable asset that you have. And I was like, oh, yeah, I haven't been doing that because I just want to listen. So it's been resurfaced as pretty top of mind these days. Especially moving on to Clubhouse, where people can only judge you by the quality of your voice. It's like, how is your personality going to shine through in a way that people can sense who you are and what you have to offer? I guess in that same vein is being uniquely you also, there's an element of being vulnerable and being vulnerable to criticism or being vulnerable to yourself being a critic. How do you overcome that? I don't think I have problems being vulnerable. I can talk all day about all the things I'm worried about. I don't have problems really sharing it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm fairly open, but that's part of my personality. That being said, I think the one thing that would make me a more effective marketer, like to self-market and self-promote myself, is if I had the confidence of a mediocre white man. So no offense to the other white men out there, but when you're mediocre and you have the confidence to believe that you are really good. And you you see this very often where the most confident people are often the least qualified. I think that's something that I wish I could cultivate in some ways. I mean, then again, like most of the people I I look up to aren't mediocre people, right? So it's this odd dance that I (laughs) wish that I could kind of process. I think often I can fall into a category of being a little bit too humble. And whether that's a byproduct of culture or personality, I'm not entirely sure. But I think that's something that I I personally do feel like I need to work on. Not being humble or bragging more. (laughs) Being less self-deprecating, probably. Yeah. It's actually like, I think I'm humble to the point of being self-deprecating, which can be detrimentary. Like it's not 
100% negative. Like I like who I am as a human being, but I think there's a way to do it that also honors who I am, right? Yeah, yeah. I feel like that would be another conversation. So, oh yeah, a whole another conversation. <laughs> totally. I think I struggle with the same issues in terms of how to focus on, you know, the unique elements of my own personality and letting that shine through. I haven't quite figured that out as yet. Like what parts do I want to share, I guess? And if so, like how do I share it? Yeah. I wonder if it's just experience, right? Like Yeah. They say that the takes 10,000 hours to become an expert, but I, you know, I don't really believe in that trope per se, but the idea that the first hundred or thousand things that you do of this one thing is going to suck. It's just the byproduct. You just have to push through it. And then eventually the, the pieces that are most valuable start sticking. You start getting into that feedback loop as you become more discovered. And so I think it's a little bit of that kind of a dance. Yeah. It needs to happen. Yeah. A part of me is also just going along with the ride. And I believe that something will come out of it in terms of like, I'll either have an aha moment or like with each and every experience that I gain from the conversations I have or just doing more of the podcast that I'll get better eventually, I hope. <laughs> there we go. Practice makes perfect. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I felt like I've become a better communicator as a byproduct of doing these podcasts simply because the more you have to edit yourself, and the more you look at all these mistakes and ums and ahs and you knows that you're doing, you're like, start to get really conscious about them. So if anything, if this podcast goes nowhere, I would have become better at communicating ideas. And I think that's super awesome. Yeah. I think I've just become a little bit less scripted, maybe. Good. In my conversations. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Caring less, <laughs> but in a good way, you know. Yep, yep, yep. Last question here in the lightning round is, what is your superpower? I think my superpower is storytelling. I can often find the story in anything. Once I understand who is telling the story and who is hearing the story, I can often find a way to string those two pieces together, regardless of what it happens to be, whatever the narrative happens to be. And I can do that for almost anybody in any capacity. That is truly not a storytelling. <laughs> that's really a superpower because that's something I've been trying to figure out myself. Is And even though I'm in podcasting, it doesn't necessarily mean that I am a good storyteller, but just been doing a little bit more reading on that. Mm. Okay, well, how can we follow you on your journey? You can Google Von Wong in whatever platform you happen to be and you'll stumble across me. <laughs> yep, it's fairly easy. Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. So feel free to hit me up, reach out, let me know what you think whatever and go from there yeah totally well this brings us to the end of our conversation for now do you want to add anything else before we end no thank you so much for taking the time for being here and whoever's listening all the way till the end i hope you know that every action that you take is making an impact and you get to choose whether you're making an impact in a conscious positive way or not and that's totally your choice but you have that power the power is yours, as Captain Planet would say. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, thank you again. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. And I will continue to follow you on your journey. And I hope this is not the last conversation, but more to come. Alrighty. Thank you very much.
Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.